Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about how science got women wrong with Angela Saini and her latest book, Inferior. Angela Saini presents science programmes on BBC Radio 4 and the World Service, and her writing has appeared all over the world. Angela has a Master's in Engineering from Oxford University and a second Master's in Science and Security from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Her first book, Geek Nation, was published in 2011, and long-term listeners might remember us talking about it on a previous Little Atoms. And Angela is now the author of Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story. Angela, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us what the idea behind Inferior is then, first of all. There are a number of ideas, actually, but... I think, first and foremost, it was triggered by the fact that so much of what I was reading about women in the press and in scientific publications even seemed to be so contradictory. You know, we get all these weird messages, uh, some papers saying that men and women's brains are entirely different, that we think differently, others saying that actually those differences are exaggerated, that this is neurosexism, and I really just wanted to pick apart What is it that biology really says about women's minds and bodies, our place in evolutionary history? Um, What does it really tell us? And if it is controversial, then what are the reasons for those controversies? What's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about in science? And before we actually get into the book, when did you first notice these attitudes that you talk about the book in your own life and career? (sighs) That's a difficult question. I think it's impossible to grow up any kind of gender or any sex and not be affected by the stereotypes or at least encounter the stereotypes that people associate with that sex or that gender. Um, And certainly for me, I think, you know, when I was at school, I was the only girl in my chemistry and um, maths classes. When I went to university, I was the only girl in my class in my college um, studying engineering. So it was immediately aware to me that my sex was an issue even though it may not have affected my everyday life, it certainly, you know, I encountered the fact of my sex being an issue in the sciences. Um, I never really thought about it that much, to be honest. And I, I never really thought about it a great deal, mainly because I studied engineering. As a science journalist, I tended to cover engineering stories and tech and physical sciences. I never really engaged with human biology and behaviour, psychology. Those fields were kind of separate to my life, but... A few years ago, an editor at The Observer asked me to write a piece on the menopause and it got me thinking (laughs) and I decided to look at the the issues around why it is that we experience the menopause in our species when it is so rare amongst other species. And it's a real big evolutionary puzzle in biology. A lot of people have been thinking about it for a long time. And the reason is that no other primates experience it. They all die around the same age that they become infertile. And even amongst the wider animal kingdom, killer whales, one of very, very few species that we know experience the menopause. So I wanted to look at the evolutionary explanations out there for it. And what stood out at the time, so coincidentally at the same time as I was writing that piece, 
a paper had just been published by three male scientists at McMaster University in Canada, suggesting that the reason for the menopause was that generally men of any age, including older men, don't find older women attractive. Um, And this was an extension, if you like, of an existing idea called the patriarch hypothesis. And this is that older men tend to uh, mate with younger women because they're fertile or, you know, because they find them more sexually attractive. And that is why older men, we still have older men living, and that's why we have high longevity, whereas older women are infertile and live as long because these older men are having sex with younger women, (laughs) which I found quite interesting. What was even more fascinating was the fact that the counter-hypothesis, and actually the leading hypothesis even to this day, you know, the, the one with the most weight behind it, is the grandmother hypothesis, which says something completely different. This is that the reason women live so long into their infertile years is because grandmothers are so crucial to the survival of their families. And we can see this statistically. The presence of a grandmother raises the odds of her grandchildren's survival across the world. Um, So there is a mechanism there, you know, a real possible evolutionary mechanism for how this could have happened. And uh, there are researchers, especially Kristen Hawkes at the University of Utah, who have done huge amounts of research looking at the role of grandmothers, studying grandmothers amongst hunter-gatherers, the data, building up um, statistical models to explain this and yet there are still people like those three men at McMaster who come along and say no actually it's because uh, older women aren't attractive to any kind of men so the fact that that controversy existed you know for me as a science journalist I'm not in a position to be able to say which one is right of course we don't know they don't even know which one is right these are just theories but what I found interesting was that these controversies existed that there were people on one side and people on the other and that people on Uh, the grandmother hypothesis side tended, although not exclusively, tended to be women. The people on the patriarch hypothesis side tended to be men. And although you you mentioned the idea that other animals do not have something equivalent to the menopause, but there are plenty of examples in the animal kingdom of mothers taking care of children when they're older, or also taking care of their own young into adulthood, aren't they? Yeah, and that's very common. And that is what we would expect. You know, the nature of nature is that you look after your children, you you reproduce, and as soon as that reproductive function isn't necessary anymore, then you tend to die. That's the kind of rule (laughs) across all species. What is weird is that in our species, that and in killer whales, that even after you can't reproduce any longer, even after your children are of adult age so they don't necessarily need you, you're still alive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in very good health for many decades, and certainly that's the experience of, uh, in my family, my mother and my mother-in-law, the time they experienced menopause, their children were all grown up, but they were very, very healthy. They play a huge role in raising their grandchildren, and that's the key here, is the grandchildren role. Now, in killer whales, it's slightly different, and um, research is still being done on this, but what it seems to be is that male killer whales are very attached to their mothers, And that continues well into adulthood, Mm -hmm. so much so that losing a mother for an adult male is dangerous to his health. You know, his odds of survival go down. And that's partly because these older killer whale females have this kind of wisdom about where certain food sources are. They, They have an understanding that is beneficial to their group, and that seems to play a role in kind of keeping the group survival but particularly for some reason the sons yeah it's only the males that's interesting (laughs) not exclusively but yeah it tends to be the males so they don't tend to have this kind of tight bond with their daughters it's interesting we do we still don't know the reasons for it but it it is interesting all right well before we get into more of the the research that you actually look at in the book let's talk about i guess how historically we've seen differences between men and women and of course you know since people were able to think people have had various different ideas and hypotheses about why men and women might be different ironically it's once we get into the age of science the age of like the enlightenment when we like to think this sort of thing might have started to get sorted out that some of the the myths that we have nowadays really started to get solidified and you talk about well tell us about this the correspondence between darwin and the woman called caroline kennard first of all which is relevant here yeah i think it's fairly well known i assume anyway or maybe it's just me it's fairly well known that male victorian biologists were not the best when it came to women um what was interesting is that you know for me darwin is a hero 
uh, for a lot of people, he's a hero. His ideas were so influential, so important. But also he's a hero because he was careful. You know, he's so thoughtful and meticulous when he did his work. He was, in that respect, a very, very modern scientist. You know, he was empirical. He was um, thorough, which is strange when you think about what he said about women. Because really, when he, when he very sweepingly wrote about women as being intellectually inferior to men. And this is odd for him because he didn't really think about it very deeply. It was based purely on his observations of the immediate world around him. So this correspondence that he had with Caroline Kennard, this is a set of letters that I read in the Cambridge University Library, which holds a big archive of Darwin's personal correspondence. So Caroline Kennard was a member of the women's movement in Boston, Massachusetts, and at one of these meetings, another woman told her that Darwin had written in his books that women were inferior to men. And Caroline Kennard just couldn't believe it. You know, Darwin was this genius, this big genius, and she just assumed that this woman had got him wrong, misinterpreted his work. So she wrote to Darwin this very lovely, neat letter saying, look, please, can you correct this misconception that people have? Surely you don't think that women are inferior. And Darwin wrote back, and this was right at the end of his life, so it's not as though his opinions changed as he got older. This was in the last year of his life. He wrote back to Kennard and said, no, actually, that is what I think. I think that even though women are superior in moral qualities, which I found slightly patronising, they are inferior intellectually. And to make matters worse, he added, knowing that she was a member of the women's movement, added that there is no point and there is no value in women pushing for equal rights or the vote, which women, of course, at that time were, um, because it would damage the happy harmony of homes if they, if they were to do that. So not only is he saying that biologically you are inferior, but also don't even try to catch up to us in the evolutionary stakes because it would be damaging to society if you were to do so. So he held these views publicly in his published work, in The Descent of Man, also privately in his correspondence. I'm Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now, there's a, another woman I want to talk about here who, as often in the in the history of science, I mean, I think perhaps it's just me and my prejudices, but I'd never heard of her. And I think she's a sort of forgotten figure, Eliza Burt Gamble. Um, who was she? There were a number of women around the time that Darwin and other male Victorian biologists were writing about women. And we have to remember this was an important moment in history because not only were scientists kind of mapping out the human body and the human mind evolutionary history at the same time women the women's liberation movement was in full force they were fighting for the vote so it's inevitable that these two spheres of society would have met of course they did and women as they encountered Darwin's work on the one hand were really excited by it because if you think at the time women were heavily constrained by biblical ideas of men and women belonging to different um, having different roles in society and at home the Adam and Eve idea, really. Darwin blew that all open. Evolutionary theory promised them a completely new way of thinking about themselves. And if we were really descended from... If we all had the same origins, if we were all like other animals, descended from a common ancestor, then it made no sense that we would follow different rules from everybody else, you know, that women and men would lead such different, completely different lives, and that wasn't the rule in the rest of the animal kingdom. Elizabeth Gamble was one of these women who took up that baton. Um, She read Darwin's work and was incensed by it in a way. She really felt that evolutionary theory could be read differently, that women weren't necessarily inferior. She was a teacher, self-educated. Of course, at that time, women didn't have access to higher education. So she went to the Library of Congress and educated herself on the history, on the science, and wrote her own books on the subject, on the superiority of women. And she made a really good case. Yes, if you read her work now, there are big scientific holes in it because she wasn't trained the way that other people were trained. But she also made some really good points. Um, Her book sold really well. The tragedy was that she was pretty much ignored or marginalised by the scientific profession. They They just thought of her as a silly woman. This is what one historian told me, which is a shame because if they had incorporated, if not her ideas, then at least the philosophy of thinking about women differently, then maybe the mistakes that Darwin and others were making wouldn't have been made. 
early in the, the 20th century, we get the the discovery of hormones, which basically becomes like, you know, a constant bugbear through the, you know, the story of whether or not there are differences between men and women and where those differences come from, you know, right up to, you know, you've, you've already talked about the, uh, the you know, the menopause and the, and the the grandmother hypothesis, but like even, you know, discussion of the menopause is obviously rinsed with talk of hormones as well. Again, this this is like a, it's golden for men who want to, you know, retain these old fashioned ideas about differences between men and women, isn't it? It is. It is in a way. But what's interesting about the 20th century is the more we find out, the more it seems to challenge these long-standing hypotheses. So, for instance, sex hormones, the discovery of sex hormones around the 1920s. Before they were discovered, people, you know, before we isolated them and knew exactly what they were, people assumed that, you know, male sex hormones were produced only by men, female sex hormones were produced only by women, and there would be no crossover. Slowly, it became clear that women produced testosterone, men produced estrogen. And this blew everything up in the air because suddenly, what does it mean to be male and female if, we're, if we have overlapping hormones? All these kind of long-standing Victorian ideas about um, masculinity and femininity suddenly didn't hold that much weight anymore or that much water. So... It started to slowly chip away at the idea that the binary idea of sex or the kind of very fixed ideas about what it meant to be masculine, what it meant to be feminine. And that continues to this day. That has happened for many, many decades to the point where now, you know, these ideas of binary are, are slowly kind of melting away and we see gender at least as more of a spectrum. We acknowledge that there are people who are intersex, who sit between the sexes biologically, you know, they have they have different uh, chromosomal patterns so things are changing it's taken a very long time because if you think of how just how fixed and hard those ideas about being male and female were we had a long way to come and it's taken us a hundred years to get to this point now even from the discovery of hormones and as you said things are, are still changing and it'd be nice to be talking about this as if it's like you know a gradual progression from the bad old days to now and we're all more enlightened but controversies still keep coming up and you talk about you know Larry Summers for instance at, at the start of the book but one that I, I wasn't familiar with was this PLOS One journal. And these things happen quite frequently to be honest. There are problems with the review process that there's there's some bias there. Um, yeah, a paper was published um, with female authors and the reviewers suggested that they add a male author for weight. These things do happen. We know that they happen. It's, it's uh, I guess, fairly unusual for it to be so open like that. But we know that bias exists in the research process. And that's something that's slowly being tackled just now. Actually, it's taken a very long time for science to start putting its house in order. And obviously the book is about, uh, you know, the science of difference between men and women all over. But particularly concerning the sciences, what does all this... What effect does this have at the moment still on women who might be considering entering the scientists? Like you talk about entering the scientists, you talked about, you know, studying engineering, but like you also mentioned that often you would be like, you know, one of the only women in the class and things. I mean, what what sort of barriers is there still to, to women who want to pursue a career in science? I think it's still a profound problem. The fact that we still see such gender disparity in many of the sciences, not all of them, some of them much better now, things like psychology, parts of biology, medicine. The fact that women are still so grossly up underrepresented in maths and engineering and physics is an issue. Again, I think women are starting to tackle it. It's been really wonderful for me since the book was published to have so many women get in contact and tell me about their experiences, tell me about the wonderful initiatives they're running to encourage more women into the sciences. Um, encouraging young girls particularly there's a big movement to do that but these ideas still remain there are still the old guard and actually some younger people I mean you may have heard recently about the Google memo controversy mm -hmm, so yeah. there's this engineer James Damore who um, who's actually you know in his 20s he's not you know this old, old white guy who's got these old-fashioned ideas about women he's a young guy who has very sexist ideas about women and he claimed 
or he suggested in a, in a very gentle roundabout way that perhaps the reason that Silicon Valley doesn't have as many women as men is because for some reason women aren't biologically inclined towards that or you know perhaps their aptitude isn't quite the same as men in these technology subjects the fact that you know young people still have these ideas is a problem because it really does hold women back if from a very young age you're fed this idea that maybe you're not cut out for this and people said that to me when I was young you're not cut out for this I didn't care but they said it that affects you if you know that if you enter a certain career your odds of success are reduced because of bias because of sexism because other women have struggled in those fields then it requires a hell of a lot of tenacity and actually in some cases you know you you have to believe that you can succeed against the odds you have to believe that nothing else in the world would be better for you to do. you know. And when we're making our career choices, when we're making our choices about everything, what we want to do in the world, um, we tend to choose the things that we know are easiest, where we're most likely to have success. We all do that. This is one reason why immigrants tend to become doctors and accountants and lawyers, because there are proven paths to success in those fields for immigrants. And the same goes for women. If you know there's something where you are going to encounter a lot of resistance, then it's a lot easier to do something else. And these tiny little influences, these tiny little mental effects on your brain can profoundly affect the behaviour of large groups of people and change how society looks in the long run. And that's really important to remember. One of the messages I want to get through in Inferior is that before jumping to the biological as an explanation for the gender disparities that you see in whatever walk of life, think about the multitude of social and cultural factors there may also be. Because very often there are so many <laughs> and, and they can paint a much, a far more different picture than the one that you get from reaching for the most convenient biological explanation, which is what James Damore did. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Angela Saini. We're talking about her book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the new research that is rewriting the story. And Angela, in the second part, I want to look at some of that new research that's rewriting the story, as it were. Health, to begin with, so the disparities in you know health outcomes between men and women. Um, actually, you start off the chapter where you look at this, back in India, where it's still more hazardous to be born a woman. Yeah, and there is still a cultural bias in favour of females. And I've encountered it in my own family you know my mum was under pressure from certain factors in her family to have a boy 
she kept trying she ended up having three girls at that point she just thought okay i'm not trying any further but women do they carry on sometimes they have abortions sex selective abortions it's illegal in india but it does happen sometimes um, baby girls are killed as soon as they're born that happens in huge numbers it's a massive problem um, and this happens across asia in china as well and the result is that gender ratios are really heavily skewed in favor of males which is horrible it's it's murder it's genocide if you like you know it's a selective um, murder of of the female sex now the ironic thing here is that female babies are more resilient would that be right yeah so, so one thing surprised me in my research and the, the reason why i put the health chapter near the beginning of the book is because i was interviewing a woman uh, a brilliant researcher at the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine joy lawn about female feticide and you know the kind of gender side issues that you see and she said to me it's quite a common you know known fact amongst people who work in maternity hospitals that a girl is more likely to survive which is really intriguing. Why is that? <laughs> you know, biologically, why is a girl more likely to survive? And there has been some very interesting research done recently because this was a question for some reason that was, wasn't looked at for a very long time within the sciences. And there does seem to be some kind of element within a female body. They're not entirely sure what it is, a number of elements that make it more likely that a baby girl will survive after she is born such that if there were no gender side, if there were no selective sex selective abortion, you would see the sex ratio slightly in favour of females. And research has been done into this. I mean, one of the aspects may be um, hormonal, that for some reason, as a woman is carrying a pregnancy, if it's female, she seems to, for some reason, confer more ability onto that child to survive. It's, again, you know, the mechanisms aren't very clear. Another aspect is um, chromosomal, that we know as a woman has uh, that XX sex chromosome, a man has XY. And when you're thinking about how disease works, uh, genetic disease, if you have a abnormality on the X chromosome, um, if you have a second X, then that gets accounted for. It gets, um, in some ways, cancelled out. Whereas for a male, if he has an abnormality on the X chromosome, he hasn't. He only has a Y to match it, and the Y is much smaller than the X, so he's more likely to have that X-related disease. Um, so there are X chromosome diseases out there that are m far more prevalent in men than they are in women. Again, so much more research needs to be done into this, but we know statistically that it is the case that women are better survivors, and this is not just at birth all the way up to the end of life. So mm -hmm. if you look, there's a database online, the gerontology database, that looks at all the people, it catalogues all the people around the world that they know are alive over the age of 110. It's not a very big group of people. At any time, it's you know between 50 and 100 people less, you know, very few. And almost all of them are always women, <laughs> um, which is fascinating. Again, so we see this kind of survival instinct or this... Uh, biological survival encoded into women right from birth all the way up into old age, which is interesting in itself as a scientific question. You know, a lot of work has to be done into it. But it's also interesting from a sociological point of view or a philosophical point of view because it debunks this idea that men are somehow, you know, the stronger sex. In this respect, women are the stronger sex. In survival terms, we are stronger. Well, also in what we talked about at the very beginning, about the grandmother hypothesis as well, if the idea is that women somehow, once they become infertile, once they become supposedly less attractive to men, are somehow no use anymore, why would they then therefore live longer? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think the best way to understand this body of research and why these stereotypes exist within the research, why it's been framed the way it has, is to look at history. I don't think science can provide us with the answers for why Darwin thought the way he did or even why we think the way we do now within science. It's because, you know, for millennia we have had patriarchy. Patriarchy is a system that values female beauty, you know, that places um, man as the stronger, woman as the weaker. Um, it values the nurturing abilities of women, the, you know, the ability to give birth, the reproductive abilities. In men, it prizes everything else, the intellectual, the strength, everything else. So this, this kind of old way of thinking about women, 
the, the way that Darwin thought about women fits into that narrative. The new research we have doesn't fit into that narrative, which tells us something is wrong. <laughs> you know, the narrative doesn't work. Where did the narrative come from? How did science get wedged into it to support it? And now that the narrative, now that the science is offering us different stories, how does the narrative change? This chapter about health is, is named for an, an atheism that a, another researcher has come up with. Um, to paraphrase, women get sicker, but men die quicker. And we've talked about the men dying quicker bit. And I, and I think, you know, that's, that's certainly something that's well known anyway, that women live longer than men. What about the first part? Again, research has been done into this. So if we look at things like autoimmune disease, it's more prevalent in women than it, than it is in men. And this is um, largely, again, for chromosomal reasons, that if you, uh, for hormonal reasons, sorry. So women in general have a very flexible hormonal immune system. And they have to be able to have that because when, you're, when you have a baby, that's like a foreign body inside, your, inside yourself. And if your immune system didn't respond cleverly to that, then it would reject the child. So that's why you see across the menstrual cycle hormone levels changing all the time. And this boosted immune system, on the one hand, um, makes women more likely, for instance, and this is just in general, this is typical, so not all women obviously fall into this. I actually suffer from a lot of coughs and colds, <laughs> unlike my husband who doesn't. But in general, women tend to recover from coughs and colds quicker than men or, or contract them less often than men. But at the same time, because of this heightened immune system, they're also more likely to suffer from autoimmune disease, which is kind of uh, where your immune system goes into overdrive and uh, reacts to small things in a, in a way that uh, hurts the body, like rheumatoid arthritis, for instance. So in that sense, women suffer more pain. So that's where the sicker part come from. Women are sicker. Um, another aspect, and this was brought up by one of the scientists I was speaking to, is that women survive. So if, you're, if you are a woman who is surviving something that's killed a man, of course you're going to be sicker at the end of it. <laughs> um, you know, If a man dies of TB and a woman survives, of course she's going to be sicker at the end of it in the years that she has remaining. So this is where this kind of um, aphorism comes from, this idea that women are sicker but men die quicker. I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. A lot of this sort of research into women's health particularly is relatively recent because, and, and bearing in mind obviously here that we're talking about, I mean, not, not only are there obviously physical differences, obvious physical differences between men and women, but, you know, considering we're talking here about this idea that, you know, the patriarchal medical establishment has always believed that there were significant differences between men and women, that's the, some of the myths we're trying, to, we're trying to put right, medical research has historically always been based on men and ignored women, hasn't it? That seems insane. Yeah, well, in some ways it's for good reason. So, for example, clinical trials historically have been carried out on men rather than women because you don't want to give an experimental drug to a woman who might be pregnant, you know, including women who may not know they're pregnant. And that takes a lot of women off the table. You know, Any woman of reproductive age goes off the table. Um, so really you're just left with men then. Um, so that's perfectly sensible. It's only fairly recently, over the last couple of decades, that people have realised that actually women may be suffering more adverse effects reactions to drugs certain drugs not all because ultimately biologically we're not that different and one of the reasons for that might be because these drugs weren't tested in any women we can't just treat women as slightly smaller versions of men we have different hormonal profiles um so there was a big movement in the united states and actually in europe to have women included in clinical trials and that has been successful that is now a rule you know NIH and National Institutes of Health which funds most of the medical research in the US now says that women at least have to be considered to be included and the EU has similar rules about including women in research or females in all kinds of research on animals and humans which is a good thing I think. You talk about the research that's now being done into differences in cognition between you know, male and female children right from birth. Like people are talking about, you know, those differences that, that can be noticeable like immediately from birth. Tell me something about that. So I think the idea that we are born different has existed for a very long time. 
And in some ways, society is even more gendered than it used to be. I have a four-year-old son. It shocks me to this day to go to toy stores and realise that there are pink and blue aisles. That even at his age, he's only four, he comes home and says, I don't know, boys can't do this, girls can't do this. You know, he has these kind of gendered expectations. And there's a lot of, there are a few scientists still out there who believe that these differences are innate, that we are born with them. It's very difficult to do studies on babies, um, especially when it comes to gender. <laughs> you know, to all intents and purposes, they look and behave the same, a male or female baby. You can't really tell the difference between them. But a while ago, one experiment was done on newborn babies. So they went into a maternity hospital. They showed children, and I spoke to the woman who carried out this research. So they, she showed um, a mobile and a picture of a face to some babies. And the idea was supposed to be that mobile represented kind of systems thinking. So, you know, an object, whereas a face represented empathic thinking. So nurturing, more female, if you like, in the, in the stereotypes. And statistically, apparently, this research suggested that female babies slightly prefer to look at the face, male babies slightly prefer to look at the mobile. And at the time, this was a really big deal. It's been cited hundreds and hundreds of times, this study, because it was the first evidence of any child below the age of two showing some kind of innate gendered preference which is incredibly important if you think about it. That means there is something behavioural, cognitive, psychological in children from the moment they're born. Now, the problem is that study hasn't been replicated. Nobody's even tried to replicate it as far as I'm aware. Nothing else has shown very similar results. The earliest that we've seen is from the age of two, children seem to show slight toy preferences. That's it. You know, there's absolutely nothing else. There's slight toy preference difference. And even that could could very well be social, because if you think about the toys that we tend to give to children, they are very gendered. My son was never given a doll. It was only very recently that I got the doll. So there are lots of there are a multitude of explanations why at the age of two children might behave differently. From birth, we've never seen that before. Now I spoke to the woman who carried out that research. It was in Simon Baron Cohen's lab. And Simon Baron Cohen is a well known autism researcher who's done a lot of work and into male female the male female brain. Yeah, we're gonna come on to that next. <laughs> <laughs> and and she said to me, she no longer works in his lab, she left after the after this piece of research was finished actually. And she said to me, To be honest, I don't know whether I didn't know the sex of the babies before I did the experiment. Because she was in a maternity hospital, you know? You're surrounded by pink and blue balloons. There's the names of the babies there. However much she tried, she couldn't be 100% sure that she didn't know what the sex of the babies were. And this is so prejudicial to research because if she did know, there are a multitude of things that she could have done to affect how those babies reacted or seen something in how those babies were behaving that possibly wasn't there because they're just babies they're newborn babies they can't even see very well to begin with anyone who's had a baby or been near a baby will know how impossible it is to know what a baby's thinking and that is a problem that is a big problem we can't really read too much into one single experiment that hasn't been replicated that may have been prejudiced to begin with and i describe the account in inferior and explain what it is um, that she said to me when she was explaining the experiment and to me it's shocking that that kind of research can get, gain so much popularity that it can be so influential when really at the heart of it it is quite flawed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Angela Saini. We're talking about her book Inferior. You mentioned Simon Baron Cohen and, and you know I wanted to talk about some of the 
again, what's become like very widely sort of cited experiments, but you know, a, a sort of latent in controversy about the difference between you know male and female brains. This is what you know you mentioned the idea of neurosexism, which is uh, Cordelia Fine, who's been on this show. Uh, a couple of times coin that that phrase to talk about this particular sort of thing before we say something about that tell me about a particular brain this is the brain of a woman called alice day who is she and why is her brain important oh Lesson. helen hamilton gardner yes yeah helen hamilton. that's her hamilton. pen name though isn't oh it? alice chenworth day yes. yeah that's her pen name that's right <laughs> sorry it's been a while since the book was published i'm trying to remember everything in my head she's helen hamilton gardner yes so she was a new yorker who lived around the end of the 19th century early 20th century and at that time a lot of neurologists in America and in Europe were claiming that women had smaller brains than men and this explained why they were less smart. Um, not that they were less smart because they had smaller brains, but they were less smart. The brains explain, <laughs> explain that. And this included the head of the American Neurological Association, William Hamilton. And Helen Hamilton Gardner just didn't accept it. She just thought this can't be right. I'm going to study it very much like Eliza Burke Gamble. She sought to educate herself. She went and studied with neuroscientists in New York, learned everything she could about brains. She wrote to loads of experts um, to find out what the differences, sex differences were between brains. And she wrote up her findings um, in a lovely little journal letter, <laughs> which is wonderful to read explaining, making two very good points. One, none of the experts that she spoke to could, if they were given any given brain, tell you whether it was male or female. So structurally, on the surface at least, anatomically, there wasn't a noticeable difference. Secondly, and this was the most profound, yet it should have been obvious point of all, if the size of the brain absolute size of the brain was what indicated intelligence, then surely elephants and whales would be the most intelligent species on the planet, not humans. So the point she was making was that it isn't the absolute size of the brain that's important, it's the relative size of the brain, relative to the size of the body. Now, of course, women are slightly smaller than men on average. So, of course, their brains are going to be slightly smaller on average, which should have been obvious to everyone. Um, and it is obvious to us now, of course. But even though she published that, she made this wonderful insight. Um, she, she was still attacked in the press. People said, no, that's not true. Show me. I think William Hammond or somebody else said to her, show me you know, a woman who's as intelligent as a man with a comparable size brain and, and you'll prove me wrong. Now, um, th this rumbled on, this kind of controversy. Um, when she, before she died, she she promised that she would leave her brain to medical science and she did after her death her brain was weighed and studied as part of a big brain collection and it turned out that bang on her brain was five ounces less than the average weight of a male brain which is typical of females you know five ounces is the average weight difference and yet it was exactly the same weight as the founder of the brain collection this very eminent neurologist <laughs> whose brain had also been bequeathed to science. So I think posthumously she kind of made her point. <laughs> and yet, you know, again, going back to it, we're still talking about science looking at the differences between male and female brains, you know, the Simon Baron Cohen thing. Why is that still happening? It's still happening because people still believe it. It's such an ingrained prejudice that we have that women are less intelligent. We look at society, we do what Darwin did. We look at society around us. Women are underrepresented in many areas, and we assume that this must be because they are somehow thicker. <laughs> you know, we just can't get beyond that. We don't do what Darwin also didn't do, which is um, ask ourselves, well, you know, Darwin didn't look around and say, well, women don't have the vote, women don't have access to higher education, they generally don't have the same primary education as men. When they get married, their property becomes the property of their husband. You know, they simply do not have the same opportunities or freedoms that men do. Darwin didn't do that. We still don't do that now. We don't look around and say, actually, what are the pressures that women are facing? What are the obstacles that are holding them back? What are the stereotypes and prejudices that are keeping women from achieving all the things that they can achieve? We're on a very slow route 
towards gaining equality. We're still, you know, we're still in the middle of that. We are not yet there. And as long as that's the case, people will still have, and I imagine even when we get there, people will still have these ridiculous prejudices that men and women somehow think fundamentally differently, that women are cognitively less able than men, however much the research tells them that that's not true. Um, these prejudices will still be there. And as long as they're still there, there will always be these people in science and on the margins of science who make these ridiculous claims. OK, just one more person I want to talk about uh, before we finish. Um, that's the, the anthropologist, Sarah Hardy. You visit her, you go to visit her in, in California at her walnut farm. I want to talk about this because I've also been to that <laughs> yeah. walnut farm. I had one of the greatest nights of my life. <laughs> and then we failed to actually record an interview because we had such a long dinner and got drunk. <laughs> but um, yeah, she's absolutely, as you say, a force of nature, a wonderful, wonderful person. And Sarah's, there's numerous areas in this book where, you know, Sarah Hardy has chipped away at, at some of these prejudices, isn't there? I am a big fan of Sarah. I just think she's uh, incredible. I remember before I went to see her, and she was incredibly generous with her time, which I'm sure you know. And uh, before I went to see her, I asked a number of other female scientists who I was interviewing about her work. And one of them said to me, when she read her books, her papers, she cried. And I can understand why. Because Sarah was one of the women who in the 70s and 80s fundamentally she did what Eliza Burke Gamble failed to do mm -hmm. which is she rewrote evolutionary biology when it came to women um, the story was completely reframed through Sarah's eyes and she was again inspired by feminism she'd grown up in a patriarchal Texan household her family had made their money through oil wealth she had to elope to marry her husband because her family didn't approve and as these, as you know, this second wave of feminism was happening around her, she was also in university departments learning about evolutionary biology alongside men like Robert Trivers and Don Simons, who had, again, like Darwin, very fixed ideas about female sexuality. And she just didn't believe it. She knew that there was research out there that proved them wrong. And she found it. Um, one of the, I think, the most profound thing for me that she discovered or that she laid out in her work was the truth about female sexuality, the real breadth of it. You know, at that time in the 70s, male evolutionary biologists were saying that women were naturally chaste and modest, um, which is what Darwin had said, and that this explained, if you like, the gender differences between us because the male has less parental investment, so he wants to spread his seed as widely as possible. The female has to think very carefully because she has to bear the children and raise the children and lactate and all the rest of it. And so the assumption was that females are naturally monogamous, males are naturally uh, promiscuous. And she really blew a hole through that. I mean, I go through this at length in Inferior, um, bringing in research from other wonderful evolutionary biologists as well. But um, her point was, think about the history of female sexual repression. Now, if we know that for many, many thousands of years, women have been um, controlled, their sexuality has been controlled. The example I use in the book is FGM, female genital mutilation. It's such a brutal thing. There's absolutely no purpose to that whatsoever, except to make it impossible or as near to impossible for a woman to have sex before she gets married. She just doesn't want to because it's too painful to do anything else. And even after she's married, it's still painful, but at least she'll stay faithful to her husband. That's the, that's the logic of it. That's why so many millions of women to this day still have this horror inflicted upon them. Now, that is just one side of the story. We know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ways that female sexuality is repressed. Um, veiling, I would argue, is another form of modesty imposed on women, a way of segregating respectable, sexually unavailable women from the, sex from the not respectable, sexually available women. The moral double standard, that's another one. You know, this idea that men can behave one way and women can't behave that way. Now, if women are naturally monogamous, then why do we do this? 
Why do we, why for thousands of years have we so brutally and violently repressed female sexuality? This was Sarah Hurdy's amazing insight. And it's absolutely true. <laughs> it makes absolute sense when you think about it. When Darwin looked at the Victorian women around him, who seemed to, in her, his mind at least, behave modestly and chastely and, you know, have these wonderful moral qualities, he was seeing the end of thousands of years of female sexual repression. He was seeing the result of that. And even if they weren't, as women, conscious of why they were behaving the way they were or why they were doing the things that they were or why men were behaving the way they were, the fact is culture had led up to that point. Society had led up to that point. So you can't think about it in biological terms when we know that society has had such a profound impact on how we behave sexually. And that, I think, is one of the most important ways in which a feminist perspective, a historical perspective, has challenged the orthodoxy in biology. I think that's a really good point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Angela Saini. We've been talking about inferior her latest book, which is out now from Fourth Estate. Angela, thanks so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.